Hello, welcome to Storytellers of STEM. My name is Rachel Villani. Today's storyteller is Sarah Youngren. She was one of my earliest guests here on the podcast, and she's a friend of mine from back when I was in grad school. In her first episode, we talk about her life as a seabird biologist, which involves migrating to different remote areas throughout the year. Sarah and her partner, Dan Rapp, regularly work out in the Pacific Islands and on Iktak Island in the Aleutians in Alaska. Sarah and Dan have been out on Midway Atoll since November 2020, so they've been on Midway for months doing seabird research, primarily with Laysan albatross and bonin petrels. In this episode, what we're going to do is we're going to hear some audio clip of the birds at Midway, my conversation with Sarah, and I'll end the episode with a longer audio clip that Dan recorded. I called this episode live from Midway, even though we're not technically live, but I just talked to Sarah last week and, you know, it seemed like a fun thing to call it. So you can also hear birds in the background of the conversation I have with Sarah, which I love. So enjoy. But first, a very super brief history of Midway Atoll. It was first found, in quotes, in the mid-1800s and was uninhabited at the time. Um, in the early 1900s, people started living there and they brought a lot of non-native species with them like mice, canaries, different species like ironwood that Sarah will talk about. This has had a long-term impact on the native species at Midway. and. By the 1940s, Midway had become a strategic military location and the Naval Air Station Midway was formed. And this is also the location of the Battle of Midway during World War II. So military operations eventually ceased and Midway later became part of a US Fish and Wildlife Service National Wildlife Refuge. And also because of its endemic species and its critical importance as seabird nesting habitat, it is also designated as an important bird area, which is a key designation um, by BirdLife International. This is a really short background, but I wanted to explain some because Sarah and I allude to a few of these things in this conversation, and not everyone knows the history of Midway Atoll. It's so far out in the Pacific, like if you've even heard of it, I would be impressed, especially when related to seabirds. So super short history. Now they're dealing with removing invasive species, eradicating um, any remaining non-native species, and doing a whole restoration process. So up first is a few minutes of audio of seabirds on Midway Atoll. You'll primarily hear Laysan albatross, and then stay tuned for my conversation with Sarah. Enjoy! Yeah. Uh. 
Cool. So yeah, what y'all doing on Midway? Studying birds. I am, I've been on Midway since the 17th of November. It is now the, and I have two weeks left here and it feels like a very short time, but also like I've been here forever. Um, and I'm studying mostly the albatross, but also a bits and pieces of lots of other seabird species research. Okay, what species are most common there? The Laysan albatross and the bone and petrel. And there are, uh, so Midway is an interesting place because it was, it's like, Midway is like nowhere else and never before is the line I've come up with because it just is constantly in flux. And it started off as a just sandy atoll with a little bit of vegetation and then humans moved in and there's, there's a lot of history of Midway, but the, since 96, when it's been handed over to Fish and Wildlife, the albatross and the petrels have just taken over. Like if there are people left, they would be on absolutely every surface. But for now, like we keep roads and sidewalks and like small areas clear of them. So I can sit on my front porch and see, and just like birds come up and bite my feet. So they're, they're everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've seen your pictures of them just like, yeah, literally everywhere. <laughs> and the, the laysans are funny. The, they're very they're like interested in tactile individuals. So the, they go out to sea for the first like three to seven years of their life. And then they start coming back in and having dance parties and trying to find their mate. And you can tell the really curious young ones that are like, I don't know anything. Are, are you an albatross? And they'll like come up and bite your bike seat or chase around your bike tire or they try to steal things from your pockets. And it's really weird as like, you know, this, all right, I'm trying not to influence the wildlife. Oh, oh, the wildlife is biting me in the foot. Oh, well, <laughs> hello. Yeah, they're influencing you, <laughs> sort of. You know, anything we do, we're just navigating around the birds. So you know, you're doing something else and you have to sit yourself down next to an albatross chick. And you're like, I'm sorry, just, you're fine. I'm not gonna kill you. I'm not gonna try to eat you. I'm just here doing my thing. You, you just sit there and they're mostly okay with it. And then the bone and petrels dig burrows. So the island is a bit like a giant anthill and you see the entrances and then the burrows go every which way to the point that we actually wear in some parts of the colony plywood, pieces of plywood strapped to our feet, um, kind of like snowshoes so that we don't crush their burrows because otherwise you just crash through the sand everywhere. It's horrible. Yeah, those shoes are pretty clever. There's something that was come up with by people working in Tasmania um, in a burrowing seabird colony. And they published a paper in 2012. And in 2017, Dan and I made them and brought them out here because they just, the, nobody thought they would actually work because the sand is so fragile here. Um, but they've been taken on by a lot of people have like wear them and it's getting to the point where it's a requirement when you go in most of the areas of dense petrol colony, just because, you know, the, the whole migratory bird thing, we can't, we can't take the birds underground while trying to help them. It's a catch-22. Yeah. Can you tell us like what the kind of research and studies y'all are doing there? 
So I made a list the other day of everything I've done since I've been out here. And it's a very long list. Uh, a lot of the bird work that gets done is uh, with albatross. And so one of the, there's been a long-term study going on for at least the last decade of uh, demography. So we look at what birds are breeding and successively breeding in years in just plots across the island. Um, so we did that in December and January, we call those sweeps. And so we went around and read all the bands on nesting birds in designated plots. And then since then, uh, we've been following reproductive success of birds in some of, or I guess most of those plots. And then I've been working on a project looking at how the albatross reproductive success is in different habitat types. And so we have nests marked all across the island, which the island is, I wanna say a mile and a half long, but it's, it's a big island. Like we bike everywhere or take golf carts and UTVs. Um, but so we have all these nests marked and you go searching for and finding like by GPS, okay, there's a stake around here somewhere and you find it and then you try to find the chick that goes with it um, that we put there. They're actually bands for marking chickens. We put plastic temporary bands on all these chicks when they're too small to take their adult bands. And so you just look for your little poultry banded chick. Okay, you're still alive, move on. That project has been a lot of work. That is being used for, they're moving towards, or it was supposed to happen this last year, but um, they're moving towards an eradication of mice on the island um, because they've they started eating adult albatross and that was you know, deemed bad, but it didn't happen. The eradication didn't happen because of COVID. So we're continuing a bit of monitoring that was being done as pre-eradication. And so the reproductive success by habitat type is part of that. And then we're also doing a bone and petrol study with trail cameras and following burrows and looking to see if there's mouse activity in the burrows and then if they survive or not. Uh, we did the first census that's I think ever been done here or at least in recent history um, because they've just started breeding here of the Tristram storm petrel, which is my study species from my master's. Uh, on a different island, but we found them breeding here in 2017. And then this year finally did a full census and found uh, 111 active nests, which they're really cryptic burrowing species that will just like put themselves under dead grass or live in long burrows. And so their population numbers are really poorly understood wherever they breed. They don't have super large colonies, so it's really fun to find them. I took my refresher course for my motorbo motorboat operator certification, the MOCC, so I can run boats officially again. That was a pretty fun couple weeks of actually getting to, uh, you know, practice backing trailers and learning all the, the details of running boats that I'd forgotten. You know, just, just a few things. Yeah, it's a long list. <laughs> yeah. Is there any ideas about why the Tristram's storm petrels are being found there now? I think they've probably been here for a while. Um, they, and then just in little numbers in the island within the atoll that they nest on, there haven't been people living on for a long time. And so we've just started, you know, actually paying attention to them in the last couple of years. But um, they're heavily impacted by invasive mammals. So they were here, they're probably here 
prior to people, but then rats and mice were introduced. And so they've, the bonins for sure have come back after the rats were eradicated. Um, and that's been seen on other islands. And they just, they're just cryptic. They, their population estimates across the range, which is pretty minimal. It's the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands and then similar latitude islands in Japan. The like published estimates are like from 50 to 5,000. This is, this is just not useful. <laughs> it's too broad. Like yes, no, presence, absence, about all we have. Yeah, that's really cool. And it's, I mean, 111 nests, that seems like a lot for something that's so good. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm sure there's more, but uh, we just, we went through, there's, so on Eastern Island, which is the island that nobody lives on now, there are all of these revetments, which are man-made hills that were there to protect planes back in military. And this was an active, uh, you know, place where they had lots of planes and did strategic military things. And now they've been, you know, let go back. And one of the big things that's happened recently, why there might be more nests there than there used to be, is that they've um, spent a lot of effort outplanting uh, the native bunch grass. And it seems like the Tristrams really like the bases of the bunch grass to nest in. And it has to be on a hill here. They're, they're very particular, it appears. Whereas other places they'll nest in the flat. We didn't find a single one that wasn't up on a hill. That it's interesting that it's different there than anywhere else. So they, I've done other or other work with them. Um, there's a group called Pacific Rim Conservation who are translocating birds from mostly the northwestern islands to Oahu, and then on Kauai from places where they're at risk to within fences, um, and then from. Uh, Midway to Guadalupe in Mexico is their most recent thing with albatross. But um, we took tristrums from Turn Island, which is where I did my original work, and took them to Oahu, and then they get hand raised, and then they've been coming back to Oahu, which is really cool. But anyway, my point on that is we went to Turn in 2018, and nobody had been living there full time and doing bird work for six years because it had gotten hit by a microburst, which closed down the camp. But then between the 2018 season and the 2019 season, Turn got hit by a massive hurricane, uh, it was like run over by a category five and just leveled it. And the where the Tristram's colony had been for 20 years, um, there, there was just nothing left. And we were expecting to find no birds and they had just moved, which they're not known to do. They'd moved across the island and managed to breed within that short period of time. So I think they're pretty adaptable, which is really exciting to find out that maybe there's hope for that species as climate change takes away their islands. Yeah, it's, it's good that they're maybe more adaptable than we thought. That would be good. So y'all are leaving in a couple of weeks. What's next for y'all? What's next is to spend a month at home and then go into quarantine to get on the Tekla and go out to Iktak Island in the Eastern Aleutians for the summer. Nice. Y'all are going back. That's awesome. Yep. They're making it work this year with quarantine and bubbles of people on the ship. Yeah, that's good. I mean, I think we understand how to like, mitigate things better now. And so that's helpful, but um, I'm glad you'll be able to get back there. Yeah. Me too. I'm glad they're making it work. 
last summer at home was great, but it was very, it was very weird to not be out in the field. Nice to both have a job and be very excited about going back where, where I get to go back to. Mm -hmm. How long will you all be there again? I can't remember how long that usually is. We are there from the end of May to the end of August. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. I love your migratory lifestyle. <laughs> I really love it. It's, it works for me. And it was 2020 was a very strange year in the migratory lifestyle business in that I went from uh, supposed to have 200 days on islands and then it went down to zero. And that was yeah, confusing, but also just like, okay, I have a place to be. This is fine. And then in early November, I got a phone call. Would you like to come to Midway for the winter? We need more people doing seabird work. Yes, please. Got my field time and I'm grateful for it. Yeah, it's great. It's like a sense of normalcy is uh, very valuable these days. That's one something that has been really, really special about being out here this time is realizing like we haven't had to stay six feet apart and wear masks because we go through quarantine and then, you know, get to live normal life, which is really special. Yeah, it, it is. I, I don't have that, but, uh, you know, maybe soon, at least like in vaccine groups anyway, vaccinated groups, I mean, get something yeah. like that. How many people are on Midway? About 50. So there's, it, it fluxes. We have a flight come in every two weeks and people come and go. Uh, but there, Midway is fish and wildlife. So it's a wildlife refuge. And then it also has an FAA emergency runway. So an active airport. And thus they've, there's a town of people out here that live here full time that a good portion of them are actually from Thailand and they work for the Chugach Corporation, which runs the town, runs the island and works for Fish and Wildlife on a contract. Uh, so there's like about 30 people that work for Chugach in the airport and then 20, give or take, that work for Fish and Wildlife maybe a little bit less for fish and wildlife and a lot of volunteers. The volunteers are really make this place functional. They do all the field work and plant eradication work. And it's kind of amazing what, what gets done by a crew of crew of folks out here. Yeah. I mean, I've you know been following your work on remote islands for years and it's uh, just amazing. All of the things that go into it, honestly, it's complicated. Yeah, they uh, and have it's really nice having somebody else running the show of like, you know, something breaks and you just put in a work order and then they come fix it. And it's very not field work. You're like, you mean I don't have to just cobble something together? There's there's materials to, huh? Okay. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty special. It's not normal. Um, it's awesome though. No, no, it, it's very awesome, and I. There's, there's a lot of people that would love to spend time out here. And so I have to temper my like, this is so awesome. I'm so special with like, I'm just so grateful that it has been made work, that this is an active refuge that, you know, I get a chance to keep coming and working at and hopefully making it better. Yeah, that's really special.
how many birds are there nesting on Midway? It's got to be a shit ton. I don't know. Yes. Metric. It is this year are 492,189 Laysan albatross pairs, 26,524 black footed albatross pairs, and seven hybrids and one short tailed albatross. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> That's a lot. And then we're working towards an estimate for the bone and petrels, but it is at least as many as the albatross. They just nest underground and come in at night. So they're quite quite uh, a bit harder to count. Yeah, that's a lot of birds. I mean, I knew it was a lot just from seeing your pictures, but having no concept really of like how big the island is and sort of extrapolating it out. Yeah, that's a lot. I was looking the other night trying to, you know, pull together all the little bits of information. The atoll itself is made of three islands and in like the whole atoll is a 15 mile circle. So a small portion of that is actually island. So it's, it's pretty darn dense everywhere that there is a place for a bird, there is a bird. Yeah. Um, do they try to nest on the runway or is that just, I mean, it's not habitat. How does that work? Uh, the runway is actively kept clear. So no, but anywhere else that there's like cracks and concrete with a little bit of dirt in it, an albatross will attempt to breed there and it gets really hot and you know their sticks are really exposed so they tend to or or they get flooded but they try and sometimes they flood chicks from the middle of uh, there's a expansive historical concrete that is around the uh, seaplane hangar that is kind of in disrepair but still functional and still used and there, every little corner spot where it's chipped away, there's an albatross that nests. And it just seems very detrimental to them to try to like, I'm going to nest in the middle of the concrete where all the heavy machinery goes. But the humans try not to disturb them and we hope that they survive. Silly albatross. Oh. <laughs> or they'll nest on the side of the road and then the road floods and then we, we try our best to give them extra material to build up their, their castles. It's really fun to watch albatross when they're incubating. You can tell when it's going to rain soon because they're all grabbing as much dirt as they can from around around their nest and like adding it to their nest. So they just grab it and drop it and fl- like flatten it down and move in a circle and just keep building up their castles. Yeah, the image in my head is really adorable. So I imagine it's more adorable in real life. It's super adorable in real life. And then the chicks do the same thing. So the chicks have all of these innate behaviors where they sit and they kick and they like dig out their nest cup and they move material and they'll do the little sky moo. It's just funny. And you're like, oh yeah, that is that is definitely a baby albatross, even though it looks like a giant fluff ball. They are so fluffy. I know. I just love seeing your pictures of them. They just seem so like they have such big personalities and they're so charismatic and it just, I love it. Really do. And they have, they're at a stage now where they're starting to really flap their wings, but their wings have, they're just downy fluffy things. So they, they have monkey arms, but they'll stand up and flap, flap, flap and, and then sit right back down. And it, I've been trying to catch it get video of it and it's really hard because they just they, they don't do it in any sort of logical like okay they're all gonna flap now except for right before it rains then then everybody's up and flapping but it's, it's just magical 
albatross chicks are magical. Yeah, I totally can see that in the photos. What is, is there any ideas of like nest success out there? Yeah, um, for albatross, for sure. Uh, all the other species, which there's actually a pretty long list of who breeds here. Nobody's really monitoring it. But uh, for albatross, they they range their nest success between like 60 and 90% in any given year. And, and then sometimes there's, you know, catastrophe where there'll be a flood or a big storm event or 10 years ago, a tsunami. Generally, albatross, they're very long-lived species, so they're going to save themselves over their offspring. So there's a high bit. A lot of chicks fail, eggs fail, but they do make it enough to continue this booming site. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, I don't know compared to other species, but like 60 to 90% seems pretty high, so that's pretty good. Yeah, it's... It's not a number that I've thought about placing in relative to other things recently, but yeah, they do pretty well. If they try to breed, they, they do a pretty good job of it. Yeah, that's good. What are the like, you know, living conditions? I know it varies, you know, from remote place to remote place. Like I know um, ICTAC is very different than Midway, but what is it like on Midway? On Midway, it is the cushiest field camp I've ever worked at. Um, we... The buildings are all mostly like World War II era, uh, cinder block housing is what we're in. And then there's some fancy wooden buildings that were the officer's quarters when the military was here. And we get fed three times a day um, in the Clipper house, which was actually built in the early 2000s as like restaurant. Um, but at various times, Midway has been, you know, like there were 5,000 people living here for a large chunk of time. And then there was a period where they had um, lots of visitors. And so now the fact that there's only 50 people here, there's a lot more infrastructure than, than we actually have people. And it's really interesting to see just how hard it is to maintain that infrastructure. Um, the birds try to dig underneath it and poop on top of it. And and, you know, we're really far away from everything and it's salt air. So it's really impressive how comfortable the living conditions are out here for how far away from everything it is. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, sounds like a pretty sweet field spot, like you said. Like you said. It's, it's definitely a sought-after place to be. Um, and, but also for the people that live out here long-term, it's a really kind of hard place to work because there's, <laughs> you just have to move birds to do anything and like keep them from nesting. And now we're into this period of time where the albatross chicks are really mobile and they really like standing in the road. So gotten to almost to the point where driving is hard. And even though we all mostly it's golf carts and then small um, UTVs, they still takes a lot of maneuvering. And there's a couple big UTVs that they got to haul trailers for watering. And they're getting to be near impossible to drive around because you have to move so many birds. But then also uh, the resupply ship came in last week and it's a big cargo container or car- cargo ship. And so they're moving cargo containers on semi trucks. And it's just like so kind of absurd to watch this giant machinery going by. How, how are you doing that? You just have to go through and move birds out of the way. 
Yeah, it seems like so out of place, like thinking about semi-trucks and containers on an island. In order to make this place run, it takes a lot of stuff, like the most expensive fuel per gallon, probably anyway. Probably, yeah. I mean, it's got to go all the way out there. Plus, people got to eat and equipment's got to be maintained and all of that. I am very impressed by the folks that keep this place running and all the drama and politics that they go through to, to keep it running. There's a lot of voices suggest it should be done otherwise, but they're not on the ground. I feel like there's often a conflict between like what needs to happen in the field and then what people who don't do field work think should happen. Because <laughs> they're not usually oh, the same thing. No, no. And like the theory of like, okay, we're going to do this thing. And then you get to the field and you're like, well, how do we do that? I see what you were going for here, but um no yeah <laughs> it's not gonna happen yeah yeah <laughs> yeah and fish and wildlife has extra I don't know uh pressure because they also you know manage and regulate and all these endangered species and things that are like high target for politicians so that's got to be extra stressful mm-hmm. no thank you and it's hard here to like you know most refuges are open to the public because that's just, you know, how wildlife refuges work. But it, the logistics of getting people out here right now, just it, it doesn't work at the moment. And so how do you get that, like, appreciation for the importance of this isolated refuge being really important for seabirds and monk seals and turtles and plants to people that aren't allowed to come visit? And, like, knowing that the wildlife all depends on this place but also that it has all this historical importance and like finding that balance of maintaining it as a place where the birds can thrive, but also that the people are made, you know, it's acknowledged how important it is, has been for the historic history of, you know, our, our country. So it's standing outside like, huh, well, I'm here and I'm standing on dirt surrounded by birds and poop, but it has a lot of history too. It's cool to see it. Like it would be really great to have like a virtual reality slash time travel where you could like see all the different phases of what the specific spot you're standing on looked like. Yeah, that would be cool because it would be so different across the, across the years. Yep. So this is the place where I put in a plug for the Friends of Midway Atoll group. And um, one of the current volunteers out here who's uh, been working for FOMA and is a fantastic photographer, videographer, and he's making, he's aiming to create something that's kind of that, where he takes footage of uh, what we see now and drops in the historical pictures and kind of shows you these filters of like, here's what it looks like now. Here's what it looked like, you know, when Nixon stood on the step of the Midway house. And to all these different things, I'm looking forward to what he creates with that. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I'm sure there's like tons of historical photos you could reference and go find what they look like now. That's cool. But it's also really hard to like the island. A lot of the parts of the island look like drastically different than they did last year, mm-hmm. just because the vegetation grows so quickly or, you know, you take out a chunk of ironwoods and then it looks completely different. So figuring out and buildings come and go and it's like 
where is this picture taken? I don't know. Could be anywhere. Yeah, true. Yeah, islands are very dynamic, especially, um, I don't know, especially things like that where there's been so much that's happened over the years. And it's been pretty cool to see it over the last five years because they've been working towards, well, first of all, there's been a major push to eradicate verbicina, but verbicina is a plant that got brought here and in the military era because they brought in a bunch of soil and then it was maintained because the island was mostly kept as like a giant lawn. And then when it got given back to fish and wildlife and they said, okay, we're going to try to make this, you know, seabird habitat again, not lawns. Verbicina turned into something that made monotypic stands across the island and just, you know, birds couldn't breed in it. And so they've been pushing really hard to get rid of that. But then also you have to replace that vegetation with something. So it's been fun to see the native plant propagation and outplanting and uh, and just creating these little areas that hopefully will spread and uh, make this place sustainable for the future as something that it can can survive without humans and have diverse plant life. Yeah, that's awesome. And will be awesome as it continues, I'm sure. Hopefully. It's interesting to see when you take away the really takes a lot of work to maintain a lot of this restoration. Like when does it become self-sustaining? You can do it little plants. (laughs) Yeah. At some point it gets over the, the ridge or whatever at some point, I don't know where that point is, but it takes time and it's not a small Island. It's a tiny Island, but it's not a small Island. Yeah. Restoration takes a long time. It does. Yeah. A lot easier not to bring the things there in the first place. <laughs> yeah. I feel like it's very easy to mess things up, but it takes forever to fix them. <laughs> right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Humans. Yeah. I know, right? Yeah. Okay. So I have one other question. Um, I know we talked a lot about a lot about the birds, but you alluded to other, you know, marine wildlife that relies on midway in that area um what else is out there that uses it or nests there or breeds there there are hawaiian monk seals and green sea turtles um the turtles come here and bask they don't breed here quite as much or like not very many of them breed here but they're here all winter long uh the monk seals they make use of the the beaches and they pup here and they do a decent job of surviving. Uh, they're one of the, those very endangered, uh, need lots of help from humans to make it through human times species. And, but they're, they're really fun to watch. We're only allowed to watch them from a distance, but they're, they're just really curious, playful, little wobbly friends, says the big tough scientist. Um, there are manta rays that make use of the harbor and surrounding areas, but um, they've been doing some work the last couple of years of figuring out like how big the population is. And it seems like um, our harbor may actually be a pupping nursery place for them, which is pretty exciting. And there, what else? There's a pod of spinner dolphins that comes and rests in the lagoon during the day and they like to join the boats so like you we go back and forth between we live on sand island and then eastern 
station is about a mile away. And so when we do work over there, we take the boat back and forth and this dolphins will come and join where they're like, oh, cool. And then they ride the bow and you know, like, you try to get them like, okay, we're not engaging. And so you stop and they just stay in queue. of like, okay, come on, let's, let's keep going. We want to play. And they just, I mean, I think it's the curious teenagers that join the boat, but it's pretty fun to see them. And then there's a lot of marine or like reef ecosystem. Uh, there's a lot of species of nudibranch and actually a lot of reef fish that live in the harbor. And then there's an outer reef that is pretty darn productive. But we haven't, haven't gotten to go out to the outer reef this trip. It's pretty cool. It is encountering a lot of coral bleaching um, because the temperatures have been warmer here in the last couple of years than is normal. That sucks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Leave that one on a happy note. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think that's happening. You know, it's happening worldwide. Um, a big problem. Uh, but spinner dolphins are adorable. It's very exciting to be running the boat when the dolphins are joining you. Where you're just like, hello, I'm part of your pod. Uh-huh. <laughs> They're just doing fun dolphin things. I mean, it doesn't take them just like one big tail pump and they're out of the water and flipping. That just looks like so much fun. How did you, you're doing backflips. I'm going to do backflips. Yeah, I'd probably hurt myself, but it does look fun. There's other birds that breed here too. So it's mostly the albatross, but then there are, I have a list, um, wedge-tailed shearwaters, Christmas shearwaters, red-tailed tropic birds, white-tailed tropic birds, black knotties, brown knotties, white terns, sooty terns, and grayback terns, and laysand ducks, and canaries, and minor birds, and a bunch of shorebirds, and a bunch of vagrants. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I love some shorebirds, so that's cool. Oh, what is a minor bird? bird. Oh. A minor bird? Yeah, that's cool looking. Yeah, they're crazy. They make cool noises. And they, they'll roost in the trees at night and you go by the tree in the morning and it's just like squawking. <laughs> and then the canaries are going back to their, you know, like um, pet store canaries are so vibrantly yellow. Their wild state has white and black patches. So this, this, col- or this population is going back to that wild state. And they're just so nice and vocal. It's great. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, uh, I'm looking forward to you sending me audio because I can't wait to hear it all. Um, it's one of the hard things being out here is capturing it to share where you're living in it. And you're like, and then you look back and you realize that you've taken the same picture like 5 million times. You're like, I have so many pictures of albatross chicks, but everything else is kind of lacking. And then trying to catch and like 360 video is actually probably the closest you can get to having people on the island in that you you see it with perspective and you hear it and you are actually in the landscape. Yeah, I feel like a place like that is so hard to take photos of that do it justice you know that really will get across like the density of birds and you know all of that that's it's great that 360 video exists now I should say I guess 
<laughs> definitely. And it has for a while, but it's definitely gotten better. And it's fun to see um, Brock is working on his video and a lot of it is 360 or at least has the option of being 360 to try to share it with people. So he's been trying to post it on the, the FOMA Facebook page. Um, so, so there is some, some up and available to see and there should be more soon. Okay, I'm gonna have to go look because that sounds awesome. Yep, and everybody else can go look too. Go look. Yeah, yeah. Alofoma. I'll make sure I share some of them. Yeah, this has been awesome, Sarah. And it's like a still astounding to me that I'm talking to you and you're in an island in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm 100 miles away from you. I am. We are 1,311 away from Honolulu. And oh no, I actually wrote it down. We are 5,050 miles apart. That's so many miles. Good Lord. And we're talking. Yeah, that's amazing. God, technology is awesome. It is. It's pretty special. Even yeah. when it's lacking. Like, but it's enough. It's enough that we can do this. So that is Yeah, it. for sure. It's great. And also, thank you so much for having this awesome idea because it's brilliant and I wish I had come up with it, but full credit to you because this is awesome. Yeah, I'm glad it can work. It's been, it's nice out here because you can actually, there is enough internet to, you know, have conversations from the field, share photos from the field, actually interact with people when you're in the place and are freshly, you know, excited and immersed in it to share it. Yeah, instead of just like, total disappearance for five or six months or whatever, um, yep. which has its pros and cons, I'm sure, but nice to be connected. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to going back to the land of actual functioning internet, but I'm really glad to be here. Yeah. You'll be back soon enough. I'm sure in a couple of weeks, way too, two weeks will go by way too fast. Yeah. No kidding. I, I mean, I can't believe you've been there since November. It doesn't feel like it's been five months, basically. No, it doesn't. It doesn't at all. Time is actually not, um, you know, it moves faster and slower at the same time when you're in the field. I totally understand that. Cool. Well, I guess that's it. Thank you so much. This is fun and it's nice to talk to you and catch up. Yeah, you too. I'm glad we stayed connected. Yeah, me too. Um, I talked to Jeremy Conkle not too long ago. And, you know, I know he, like, he was around when you were in Baton Rouge and it's just like, seems like a lifetime ago. And it's just like, I don't know, cool that some of those connections are still there. It's been, it's funny to keep those connections and like, that was actually quite a long time ago, but also it feels like yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Have a good rest of your day. This was awesome. I will. And you too. It's good talking to you. All right, so that was my conversation with Sarah. I hope you enjoyed it. It's always a treat for me to get to talk to Sarah, talk birds and catch up and hear about all the exciting things that she's been up to. So up next is a 10 minute clip um, of what it sounds like in the early morning at Midway Atoll. Enjoy.
y'all, it's Rachel here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I just wanted to have a quick reminder that if you or a friend or someone you think would be a good guest, if you have any people like that, let me know or send them my way in some way. Um, And how you can do that is you can find me on Twitter at Flying Cypress. You can find the podcast on Facebook at Storytellers of STEM. That's STEM with two M's. We also have a shiny new Twitter account for the podcast. So you can find the podcast on Twitter at Storytellers42. Yes, I'm a nerd. You can also email me, storytellersofstem at gmail.com. Or you can find me and everything else on my website, rachelvillani.com. So you have loads of ways to get in touch with me. I want to hear from you. Go like the Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter. Follow all the storytellers on Twitter since they're mostly all there. And just, you know, have a good day. And thank you for listening. 